hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. We are ending our unit on wandering in the wilderness, and we are ending it by jumping forward to First Peter. I know it seems bizarre, but somebody actually asked me if we were just like leaving the Old Testament for a while and doing some New Testament stuff, but it actually is the next lesson in the Gospel Project curriculum. They have put it here for a purpose. I think it is a good one. It's going to kind of act as, in some ways, kind of a synthesis of what we've been talking about, not even just for the time that the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness or the Exodus, but even before that, I'm even thinking back to uh, Abraham and things of that nature. So we're going to kind of talk about that, and uh, it's going to be sparked by some of the things that uh, Peter is writing in his letter. Um, And so we're going to talk about the way that we're going to kind of synthesize this. We're going to talk about how the stories we've been studying in the Old Testament um, over the past few months, it's been a little while that we've been in the Old Testament now, and we're going to talk about how those things have pointed to what we now know is faith in Jesus and kind of the role that the people who experienced these things and wrote about these things, um, kind of what their experience was, and that's going to be something that Peter gives us as uh, a way to see it through their eyes and think about uh, what it would be like to be writing about these things, these wonderful things, and kind of wondering what the end of all of them is. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Also today, as I record, April 28th, 2022, it is my wife Caitlin's 30th birthday. So happy birthday to her. I want you all to know I have many faithful listeners, and Caitlin is one of them, but here's really where she diverges from the rest of you. She has to spend all day with me anyway and hear me talk for much more than 30 minutes a day, and yet she willingly, in her free time, when I'm not around, chooses to listen to me talk for 30 more minutes. Now, if that's not dedication, I don't know what it what is. So happy birthday to Caitlin. Love you. I'm sure you'll be listening. So we are going to be in 1 Peter today, and we're going to be kind of running through the whole chapter and um, going through a whole chapter of a New Testament epistle in 30 minutes is challenging, but we're going to do our best. And then, of course, we're going to relate it back to our other stories. So we're really taking on a challenge, but that's where we're going to be. So we're going to start in chapter one, verse three, and then I'll read through verse five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter is starting out by uh, reminding his readers of the faith that already belongs to them. So good practice for them. Also, of course, good practice for us to be reminded of the faith which we stand. There's some, there's a lot of depth in those three verses, but I just really love the part here close to the beginning. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope that, you know, he is the ultimate, he's the author of the faith that we have. He's the one who gives us an opportunity to be born again. It's only because of who God is that we can even have that choice uh, to that we can even be born again, because if we were left to our own choices apart from the being drawn by the Holy spirit, um, we would continue to choose sinfulness, but God in his grace has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
So he reminds them of their the hope that they have, basically, the hope that they have in Jesus. Now, the people that Peter was writing to, um, it was probably a largely uh, Jewish audience. Um, he refers to them as the dispersion. Um, so people that probably, um, based on you know political events, uh, had been kind of scattered to a lot of different areas. Um, he was writing to them as they had also been undergoing persecution. So that also probably a reason for their dispersion, uh, that they had been undergoing persecution. And one of the main purposes of the letter is to encourage them. So he wants to encourage them to continue even in the face of persecution, to um, not be drawn away by false teaching or to think that because they're going through difficulty, that means they've done something wrong, but to recognize that um, they are, they do belong to Jesus and that part of that is undergoing persecution for them. So the relevance um, to what we've been studying so far, the way that this is connects kind of comes out throughout, comes up throughout chapter one. So we'll skip down to verse 10 and read through verse 12. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter is telling these believers, these believers that are New Testament believers who have um, known of the gospel that Jesus uh, came to earth and lived a perfect life, died on the cross on our behalf, and then was resurrected and ascended to the Father, and that he is going to return again. That is the uh, the salvation that they know, the salvation that they have, the same salvation that we know and that we have. And what Peter is telling them is that this faith in Jesus, this opportunity to see the plan of redemption play out, has is something that basically people for all time would be super jealous of. That all the believing community, all the people of faith, that have believed in God for thousands of years, uh, they wondered what this, what their time would look like, what the time that we also are in would look like. So he refers to uh, the prophets um, who prophesied. So that, of course, um, Moses would count as one of those one of those prophets. Um, we also think about um, the prophets who are going to come later. Um, we have whole sections of the Old Testament that are called the major and minor prophets. So he's talking about them as well. Um, but then we also see that Jesus is basically going to say the same thing as Peter. I wonder where Peter learned it from. So Jesus in uh, Matthew 13, 17 says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Jesus is lumping into kind of what I was referring to as historical, the believing community. He uh, uses the term righteous people. So you think about like, okay, Noah didn't write any books of the Bible. He didn't necessarily like have prophecies that were fulfilled, but he was one of those righteous people. Same with Abraham um, and all those kind of, uh, those kind of people who were faithful to God, uh, even as we think about um, Joshua, Caleb, and the uh, stories that we've been reading recently, that these people long to see the time when the Messiah would come, when this plan of redemption would be taking place. And so Peter is telling them, and I think he's using this to encourage them, is that there were people who were writing uh, scripture, people who were prophets on behalf of the Lord, who desperately wanted to know what the 
the full content of what they were writing was, but di- weren't didn't know. They just basically wrote in faith. It says the the spirit of Christ in them was indicating, and we know that's the Holy Spirit. So the spirit of Christ being um, the spirit that is um, sent by Christ, not um, Christ himself, but this is the person of the spirit. And we see that confirmed down there in verse 12 when he mentions the Holy Spirit as we're more used to referring to him. Uh, but so he's saying that they knew that they were writing things led by the Holy Spirit in some way and that it was indicating something, but they didn't know the full end. And it said, he says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. So basically they knew they were writing things that would be of value to future generations, but that they weren't actually going to see the end of themselves. And so here is the connection to our Old Testament stories. Here's where it comes in. This is what kind of is binding uh, the lessons that we've been covering as we've talked about, you know, all the way Genesis through we've been in numbers. Uh, As we've covered all of that ground, this is kind of where it all coalesces for us to be now in 1 Peter. But the stories that we're reading are that foreshadowing of the work of Jesus that we are now on the other side of, that we have seen realized. Now, of course, there's more works that Jesus will do. And so there are still prophecies that have not come true. But as far as this work of redemption and what Jesus did, we have seen that and we can see the foreshadowing of the work of Jesus in these stories that we've been reading. So I'll give us some examples, just some reminders of different ones. Now, I want to discuss briefly, take a little excursus here to uh, describe two ideas and two ways that we can kind of read stories that are not explicitly about Jesus. So two words I'm going to throw at you. One is Christocentric and one is Christo-iconic. Okay, these are words that um, describe basically a lens through which you can read the Bible. So um, I graduated from Dallas Seminary. And part of Dallas Seminary's um, doctrinal statement, statement of faith, is that no passage of scripture is fully understood until it points to Jesus. So some people will say, oh, okay, so I look for an explicit, kind of an explicit reference to Jesus in every every story. Others will say, well, I'm going to look for um, how Christ more more perfectly fulfills the the good in the story or how he writes the wrong in the story, something like that. So Christocentric is basically going to be like, I've got to find literally who Jesus is in every story. So for example, well, no, let's talk about Christo-iconic, then we'll do an example. So a Christo-iconic would basically uh, be a way of reading Old Testament that says the way that we have seen Jesus revealed changes how we read this story in the way that we view somebody did something good, Jesus did it better. Somebody did poorly, Jesus did it right. Somebody was disobedient to God, Christ was obedient. Christ, This person was obedient to God. Christ was even more obedient, um, things like that. So those are kind of, it's it's not a, a clearly defined line, but let me give you an example that may be helpful. So if you remember the story of the golden calf, um, the people, um, while Moses is up on the mountain, they go to Aaron, they give him all their jewelry, they build a golden calf to represent God and they worship it. Moses comes down. Well, God tells Moses what they're doing. Moses comes down. Moses, God, very angry because idolatry. 
and all that good stuff. So what Moses, one of the things Moses does is he destroys the golden calf. He puts it in the water and he makes the people drink it. Okay. So now if I was going to look at that Christocentrically, so where I, I'm, I want to find literally how Jesus is represented in almost a literal way in this story, you might say, ah, okay, the significance of that is when the, the idol is broken down, the people um, drink the water with the, uh, with the gold flecks in it. And well, Jesus, he was, when he was crucified on the cross and, you know, his blood, and it's like this sprinkling of blood and, and the drinking is like us um, being covered by the blood of Christ and communion reflects how, you know, we, we drink the, the juice and it represents the blood of Christ. So that might be an example of Christocentric where, okay, we've, we've made something very literal and explicit about how Jesus interacts with that story. Now, a Christo-iconic would say these people were disobedient and Jesus was obedient. So in, in the difficult times when things were challenging, Jesus chose obedience and he chose righteousness over things like idolatry and other sin. And then when we see how um, God forgives the people, we would say that points to a time when there's going to be a full redemption, a once for all redemption in Jesus. So I, I hope that's helpful. Um, so I tend to look at scripture more Christo iconically. So more the second one. Um, I mean, in this story, and somebody who looks at it Christocentrically might, you know, have a different interpretation of that story. But, you know, it kind of breaks down. We're like, well, if the gold flecks represent the blood of Jesus, then that kind of means Jesus represents the idol. And it doesn't quite, you know, that metaphor doesn't play itself out very well because then he's an idol. Um, and all that to say, um, neither of those is, neither way of looking at those things is wrong. Um, both want to give glory to who Jesus is. And that is the goal, right? So, but here's why I bring that up is when we look at the Old Testament stories, we, we don't have to necessarily say, okay, this is the Jesus person in the story. But sometimes we see either how humanity acts and how Jesus reflects it better. Um, we see a wrong that's done. We see an, oper or an uh, example of redemption and it points forward to the ultimate redemption we have in Jesus, something like that. So we'll talk about a couple of those stories. So uh, again, the, the term prophet would of course apply to, to Moses. So these people that um, Peter tells us are, are writing about, inquiring about, they were wondering about um, what was going to be the story, basically what was going to be the ending to the story. That would apply to, to Moses who uh, of course we have, uh, he is the person that we believe authored the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and then Jesus, again, in that part, he includes righteous people. And so you think Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, uh, et cetera. Of course, none of those people were perfect, but they were people who uh, sought the Lord. Um, and then, of course, the many prophets after Moses and then before Jesus, from that time from Moses to Jesus, a lot of prophets there as well. So Peter's telling his audience that these people were desperately searching to understand what exactly God's redemption would look like, and they get the opportunity to see it. They being the the church that he's writing to, the New Testament believers. So they, those these people in about 60s AD, and then we, we get the opportunity to see this whole story play out. And that's one of the ways he's encouraging the believers. So then he would also want us as believers to be encouraged by that. So a couple of the stories, just a handful, I just kind of thought of these off the top of my head, um, that we've talked about that I think really easily point to Jesus. So we've got Abraham sacrificing Isaac. 
Um, God tells Abraham to uh, sacrifice Isaac, the, the son that he'd promised, and Abraham acts in obedience, but, um, but God stops him, and he doesn't actually go through with it. Um, that points, of course, to uh, one, the obedience of Abraham reminds us that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, but then that while God spared Abraham's son, he didn't even spare his own son in, uh, in our redemption. So that's one way. Uh, the Passover, when the people are leaving Egypt and they kill the lamb and the blood is on the doorposts and the angel of the Lord passes over, that's uh, looking forward to when Jesus' blood is going to be what is our salvation, just like that was their salvation and deliverance from uh, the 10th plague. So Jesus' blood is our deliverance from sin and death. Uh, the tabernacle helps us look forward to a time when Jesus was going to live among us. And then not only that, but when Jesus dies and the veil is torn, so now it's there's this tabernacle was one thing, a way for God to be in the presence of the people. But because of what Jesus has done, there's not a need for a tabernacle because that veil has been torn. And we have not only Jesus who lived among us, but also the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And then like we talked about last week, the bronze snake, um, when people, uh, the people looked at the bronze snake, they were healed um, in faith, just like we see the work of Jesus uh, on the cross. And we look to that in faith and we are saved. Um, all of these things point us to the end redemption. So all of these things, all these stories that we looked for. And again, the Gospel Project does an excellent job of helping us see that. So um, when we're teaching the kids... Um, that's something that we always talk about. We we talk about how it points forward to Jesus, and that's a, a regular part of our curriculum that I'm very grateful for. Um, but this is like when you put it all together and you think about all these faithful men and women who went throughout the Old Testament on that time before Jesus, who faithfully followed God, had faith in God, knew that there was this plan of redemption, but never saw it. Now we are in a time where we can we have the benefit of looking back over all these stories and seeing what God was telling us all along, what these prophets were telling us all along, even though they didn't know and that they were serving us, not serving themselves. And those are just a handful of the stories. So, so as believers today, we really have just such a, we should have a lot of, of joy. We should be encouraged at seeing these events in light of what we know about Jesus and how they point to him. So when we read the Old Testament, we get to read it with a a special expectation, a special hope, because it's like when you've seen the end of a movie already and you see the challenges and the difficulties and you're like, oh, but just wait for the good part. Just wait for the good part. That's what we have. Anytime we come to the Old Testament, anytime we see brokenness in the scripture, we know that there's the hope of Jesus. And let's not try to keep ourselves too academic or too, uh, too displaced from these things. We can look at our own lives in that way too, right? We can look at our own lives and see the brokenness and the difficulty and know, but I know not only do I have redemption in Jesus now, not only do I have forgiveness of sins now, but I will also have forgiveness of sins and an eternal relationship with God. So we don't want to just read the Old Testament and read the Bible stories in light of Jesus. We want to read our own story. We want to read the, we want to read the story of others. How, how often do we look at the story of a person and think, well, I know how that ends, hopeless. But the hope of the gospel is that even when it seems like a life can't be turned around, 
can't be used for good, can't be redeemed, that that's when God does wonderful work. So the heroes of the of our historic faith, they knew that God was redeeming his people. They knew that he was going to redeem his people. They looked forward in faith and hope to how it would come about. They longed to see what we now know. And it says things in which angels long to look. I think that's just a points to how the glory of God just reverberates even in the spiritual realm that angels who are created beings see the work of their God and ours and marvel, marvel at what he has done on behalf of these people that God has created in his own image. So in this next section of first Peter, uh, I'm just going to read 13 to 21. It's a little long, but it's helpful. And we'll kind of take a few things from that for some application. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So he's writing to them and he tells them a few things. The first thing is the blessing of being part of God's plan of redemption, which if we believed in Jesus, we are. That also requires something of us that Jesus asks something of us. I don't know if you've ever heard this little, I think we talked about little Christian truisms a handful of weeks ago. There's, there's some good ones out there, but one of them is that I, that I like is Jesus calls us to come as we are, but not to stay as we came. So Jesus calls us, we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus, but having faith in Jesus, he asks something of us. He asks us to take hold of things. He asks us to let go of things. And one of the ways that he asks us to both take hold and let go is that we're to live our life in a way that is holy, which means embracing things of God and righteousness and releasing things of fleshliness and sin. So we are called to live in a way that is holy in order to be seen as really holy? No, in order to honor God as holy. Our holy living is not meant to point back to us. It's meant to point to the holiness of God. Now, remember, I think this is one of those, and you know, this is a verse that's quoted a, a couple of times in scripture. Um, it originally comes from uh, Leviticus, is what my note on the ESV says. And a lot of times we see this passage and it kind of gives us the shivers because we're like, well, I know I, I can't be holy, um, because I'm not God. So I guess this is just like a shoot for the moon, land among the stars kind of deal. Um, but really we can be, well, not take that back. We are holy. If we have believed in Jesus, we are holy. And we have to remember that holiness is not moral perfection. Now God is holy and he is morally perfect. And part of his holiness is that he is morally perfect, but that's not the only thing that makes him holy. What holy really means is he is set apart. He's distinct. He is different. There is not another being 
like him. So he calls his people to be unlike, to be distinct from other people, other creation. So it's really a reflection of God has this preeminent holiness that cannot be reached, but we have an opportunity to be set apart and different in our lives. And that points to the set apartness of God. So we can see this, we can get kind of shivery because some we're like, oh, I saw my life 10 for the last 10 minutes and I know I'm not holy, but we are holy. And it's not because we are awesome and really good at acting right, but because we are holy, we are declared righteous in front of and before God because of what Jesus has done. So part of knowing this whole story of redemption and knowing what Jesus has done for us is a, an ownership of this call to be holy, a call to live differently than the world would live, to live in treating others with love, to live in community, to live in generosity, to live in a way that we put aside the desires of our flesh that are opposed to the desires for God in our lives. So that's one of the things that he calls us to. That's one thing that I hope we can apply as we have the benefit of looking at the story of redemption, knowing what we've been called to, knowing what we've been given and the gift of the spirit that that can be something we walk in. Second one, he mentions being ransomed from the feudal ways of the forefathers. So the work of Jesus was what all the law and the prophets were pointing to. Okay, so when Moses received the law, it was not the full realization of the plan of redemption. Paul's going to say if the law was sufficient, then it would, we'd still be, that's what we'd still be doing. So the law, he says, was good, but it wasn't the end goal. And he also talks about how the law, (laughs) unfortunately, our fleshiness uses the law to spring up sinfulness. And that doesn't mean the law is bad. It means we're so bad, we need a bigger solution. And that solution ultimately, of course, being Jesus. And, And I think particularly where we see the blessing of redemption in this that the law couldn't do is that we have the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we are pretty much beholden to our sinful desires. The Holy Spirit helps us act in obedience. Without the Holy Spirit guiding us, we can't act in obedience to God. We can't be, uh, we are getting always tugged down by our fleshliness. So we have not only a, a set of imperatives that were given in the New Testament to follow to know how we should act so that we can be living in this holy status that we've been given based on Jesus' sacrifice, but we have the ability too, because the Holy Spirit in us guiding us. So recognizing that being really good rule followers and knowing all the right things to do, and even to an extent doing them is not sufficient, but instead it's all based in who Jesus is. It's all based on what the law, what the prophets were pointing to. And that's Jesus. And then finally, and I I hope this gives you a lot of just, um, I hope it gives you a lot of comfort and value to know that Jesus' work on the cross was planned before the foundation of the world. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This idea that Jesus would die on our behalf and that we would have redemption through him was not a plan B, plan C, plan D. It was, it was always plan A. God always had a plan to redeem us in an irreversible way through his own sacrifice for us individually and for us collectively. 
So we think, yeah, he died for me, but he died for you too. And he died for us. So it's not just a, well, yeah, he died for everybody. It's like, he also, he also died for you. So you don't want to be too specific or too general about it because to be too specific, it makes us maybe a little selfish to be a little too general. uh, I think takes away the uniqueness that um, we have and the individual love that he has for each of us. So he, he knew, even when he created this utopia for Adam and Eve, he knew that ultimately that humanity would choose sin and that that relationship between God and man would be broken and that it would need redeeming. And that was the plan. Then I think that this should just be an opportunity for us to give glory and praise to God, that he would have such a love for us, that he would have such wisdom that he would have such a beautiful plan of redemption that we can look on and say, wow, wow, I I see who God is and I'm mesmerized by that. I'm encouraged by that. I'm comforted by that. I'm given value by that. That even in the midst of my sin and my continued sinfulness, even after believing in Jesus, that God knew, he already knew that all of this would take place. And he still thought that it was worth dying on our behalf. And so I hope that as we continue to work through the Old Testament, knowing the end of the story, knowing who Jesus is, knowing how he, unlike humanity, he perfectly obeyed God to the point of death. I hope that it will just be another opportunity for us to be grateful that we live in a time where we know the end of the story, where we have scripture, where we have the death and resurrection of Jesus behind us. And we have the opportunity to look forward to what we know is our ultimate redemption when Jesus returns. Thank you.